Greetings and welcome to another episode of the Church is Changing podcast, the ministry of the United Methodist Church. I'm Paul Nixon. I'm the host today. And I am here with my colleague from Discipleship Ministries, Patricia Pena, who is an elder in the United Methodist Church and is the director of diversity and innovative engagement. Is that Did I say it right? Innovative community engagement, yes. Community engagement, yeah. We're all about engaging our neighbors in faith community. And Patricia is someone I have worked with over the years in different seasons of her life. The first time I worked with you, you were the pastor of a church in Chelsea, Massachusetts that was thriving. And that was a Spanish language congregation for the most part, I believe. And I'm just interested, Patricia, in in this season after COVID, what's the world looking like in your work? Hi, Paul. Thank you so much for having me here. And yes, we have worked for a very long time together. What is the world like after COVID? I think the landscape has completely shifted and changed the way we do ministry, the way we approach community. But it has given us an opportunity to rethink church. Indeed. Indeed. As you think about your work in Chelsea, what might be different today? I mean, you're not there, obviously, but what would, what might be different today than when you were there five years ago? What might be? I think there was a demographic shift in the area. As prices went up in Boston, people started moving in, young professionals. So the landscape from being a 1.8-mile predominantly Hispanic area is now very mixed. And, and there is a shift of language towards a need to speak English, which which I think is the same across the country as we are getting into second, third, and fourth generations of diversity. We are seeing that, you know, Spanish ends up being like the entryway or, or, the, or the getting into the community, getting to know, but English ends up being the way to a long-term sustainability. So it would be something like, monolingual, multi-ethnic. I have said over the years, every neighborhood, every zip code is a changing community. And I, I did not know anything about how Chelsea had changed since I was there a few years ago, but that is probably happening in some way, shape, or form in almost every part of the United States. Demographics are always changing. In addition to that, there's the, there's the changes in lifestyle. Yes. Changes in generation, changes in the way we use technology. It is really a very different time than... Yeah, but there, there are things that are still relevant and that can be transferable. I mean, if we think about things that might have worked back then that still can work today, post-COVID or with the changing political landscape of the country, especially in church revitalization or church planting, things like having a healthy discipleship system or having a, I don't want to use the word pipeline, but having some structure of this is how we engage in community. This is how you belong. This is how you grow here. And this is how you multiply it as a, because that moves things from being pastor centered to lay led. And it is a continuous movement. And there's something that I I, I saw in Chelsea and I, I left five years ago and I still see that that structure is in place and people keep growing. 
Another thing that I am noticing that is transferable is the way we view community, the way we see what we do, not just trying to be an answer to the community, but to really listen to the spiritual needs of the community and, and as community shifts and changes around the church plan or the church, then the church adapts to it so that they can see the need and meet it. Well, yeah, I mean, if we are dealing with communities that are constantly morphing and with populations that don't really understand what goes on inside of our systems and our groups and our the walls of our buildings, we do have to be good listeners, don't we? Yeah, yeah, especially when, you know, we, we have to be very careful when working with diverse groups to not generalize or lump them in one big category because the needs of a first-time immigrant that comes, you know, and there, there are different types of first-time immigrants that come either by survival or just because they came to study and they are from a, a high higher educational background, to, to lump them into saying all diversity is the same, all Hispanics are the same, all Latinos are the same, and that the needs for first, second, third generations are the same, limits the, uh, the capacity of, of outreach and limits the, the way we can approach ministry with and to diverse populations. In, I think it was a couple of years ago when you joined the Path One team, which is the new Church Starts team at Discipleship Ministry. What was interesting or compelling to you about the opportunity to go to work for Path One, working in the area of equipping us for ministry with, in diversity and um, community engagement? My experience throughout the years, not only serving multicultural settings, but also serving in a congregation that was 99% Anglo and, and facing firsthand the challenges that cross-cultural ministries happen. When, when I saw the opportunity to work at Path One, I saw it as an extension of the, of the ministry to bring forth like I want to say like the experience, but also help conferences and districts to be that bridge and say, hey, I have been on both ends. I, I, I've seen it, and, but I also see the potential. So for me to do this is, I see it as, as I said, when I, when I got in like a, a holy responsibility to, to bring awareness, to be a bridge, to be a, a place of, of helping, you know, Things that can be lost in translation, be able to articulate it back and forth. So for me, it was an opportunity to do this. But also seeing the, the shift that is happening in our conferences and seeing the shift that is happening in our country, seeing it as this is really important and we need to be uh, in the forefront of this work. And so I saw that as an incredible opportunity to, to, to bring the gifts and, and talents that I have to better help the, the church. And about the time that you arrived at Discipleship Ministries, the latest phase of denominational unraveling really kicked in. We've lost a lot of congregations to this United Methodist fold. And I know we've lost quite a few congregations in the Hispanic Latino community. What kinds of surprises or challenges are you seeing now in your work as, you, as we're getting into your almost your third year or so. 
In terms of post post disaffiliation, or yeah, just in terms of the new landscape, what's what are the challenges? Challenges and opportunities. I, I, for me, to see how many conferences lost a majority, if not all of their ethnic ministries, for me was extremely surprising, but surprising, but also very telling that mm. there is a disconnect between what the structure of conferences think and what the people on the ground are doing, but also seeing it as an opportunity for conferences like, let's say, like the Western North Carolina Conference that is rethinking the way they place pastors and train pastors and 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 view ministries of opportunities. I see that across the country too, that because of what happened, now conferences are thinking differently on how they invest and how they train and equip pastors to work with ethnic communities. I have been watching this this trend too that a lot of our non-Anglo ethnic congregations have left. And to me, it seems like it's been a mix of a couple dynamics. One is the dynamic around traditional views of human sexuality. That's that's one piece of it. But another dynamic is seems to be this sense of disconnect in general, that we are in the United Methodist Church, but we're not of the United Methodist Church, and it's another group of people that are running things, and it's somebody else's party almost. It, it, do you see both of those dynamics playing into? Yes, you know? yes, but but surprisingly, you know, there has been this understanding that it is it has only been. The, the topic of traditional views of, of marriage. But in reality, I think it's more than that. I think this, the latter is, is, is more accurate that people feel lost in the system. They don't feel connected to the system. Some of the, some of our leaders were not on the, on the ordination track. Some were brought in from other countries to serve in our communities. Others felt the challenge of being a 1% in a conference or a 2% in a conference and not having a voice. So all of these factors play in, you know. And then when conversations happened about, and, I, and I'm specifically thinking of a few, when conversations happened about that had to do with money or had to do with, you know, the importance of having them in the fold, they felt as though it did not matter if they stayed or they left. And... A lot of them took that position, but with that being said, I think that ha- that there are conferences that have put in a lot of thought about this. A lot of conferences are saying, "Hey, we can learn from this experience, and what can we do differently now, and how can we support our ministries so that they feel connected and that they are involved and like I can think of conferences like Rio Texas right now, how they're mobilizing their people to rethink how they do outreach and revitalize their congregations. So I see hope, but it is definitely a lesson that I hope that our conferences and bishops can can look at it because I heard a very a very wise person say that we were seeking to be inclusive and in the midst lost most of our diversity. Yeah. I mean, it, it's an irony. And yet, if you stop and look deeper, you it, you can discover some of the reasons why that happened. Several years ago, I was working 
in a one of our annual conferences that is in a part of the United States that has a very high percentage of Hispanic Latino peoples. And one of the things that struck me in, in that conversation was learning that only about 250 members conference-wide were Hispanic Latino. And it was like, you got to be kidding me. That's like over half of the population of this territory. And it's it was not my conference where I dwell now most of the time in Southern California, CalPAC. But I would say CalPAC is, a, is another case. I mean, in our community where I live, we are probably 60% Hispanic Latino. And we have just a handful of folks in our churches. What is the reason why, as the UMC has continued to aspire, at least on paper and in theory, to aspire to be an inclusive church? What is one of the reasons why we continue to be sort of marginalized among an Anglo, an aging Anglo population? That's a lot of question there, but it's a big one. I know it is a big one. And, and and I think that is the question that we all need to be asking ourselves because we see other other groups and denominations thriving and growing in in diversity. We, mm-hmm. it, it is not that people want to be segregated on Sunday mornings. I, I don't find this to be true, especially with people under the age of 40. Yeah. And, and 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 knowing that that their culture is the, the the rising population right now, which are mixed kids under the age of six, and it is a question that we need to deeply ask, not just in theory or or in structure, not just in policy, but to really ask ourselves in in, in our identity as people of God, are we truly people that have diversity? intentionally intrinsically in us from in, from its start and i think that that was not the case and i think that now as we are facing all these shifts and changes we have the opportunity to ask ourselves that question i do not have an answer for you a clear answer and i think i would be i would be limiting possibilities if i mention one or two three reasons why i think this is happening but I do think that this is an opportunity for us to deeply ask this question in terms of identity of who we are as a United Methodist Church. Is diversity intentionally in the DNA of who we are? It is, is it truly, are we planting churches with diversity in mind? Are we opening communities with diversity in mind? Are we, does our budget reflect that we have diversity in mind? Is our leadership reflecting that we have diversity in mind? Um, or have we been stressed and stretched thin in one aspect of diversity instead of looking at diversity and inclusion as more than one topic? It seems to me that we, as an aging, mostly Anglo denomination, that for all the talent that we have, that is a population that people that are not in that demographic would look at as maybe less oriented to do the to to go on the diversity journey than other folks. You know, and that and that's again I'm, that's a generalization, but I think there's a perception 
that older white Americans, and I speak as a 61-year-old white guy, that older white Americans are slower to pick up on the kinds of practices and behaviors that are necessary in order to create a multi-ethnic table. Yes, yes, because, and in part it is because, yes, we see the need. Yes, you know, we've done assessments, we've done Mission Insight, and we are welcoming. We're such a welcoming congregation. But in behind that is this thought of you will come and you will fit us, mm. you know. And, 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 and in reality, when you're opening to diversity and inclusion, you know that the moment a person gets involved and belongs, their voice, their traditions, and their worldview will shape what happens. And for older populations, and I've, I've had the opportunity to serve aging congregations that are multicultural and thriving. Yeah. And that was my last appointment, which I loved that, that last appointment. And it was people in their 80s and 90s. But the, we had to get to the point where they realized that it was not just having them come in, but that I can learn from. And one of the things that one of the elderly there said, you know, we have lost so much of ourselves that the only thing that we have some sort of control over is what happens Sunday morning. And so for some, mm -hmm. changing some things means a loss of who they are. So I think that it's not to say that they, they, they're, they're not open to, I would be, I think it would be unjust to say that. I think that it's, it's how we guide them to understand that it's not just about them, but they can leave a legacy. And that was a, a lot of a conversation that we had to help them explain. Yes. And yes, you, you have done this this way for so long. But if you want this to continue past your time, we have to open up. And that was my experience in my last appointment. But it was interesting for me to understand that for a lot of the older folk, it is a loss of identity. And, and it's harder than just shifting a sermon or a song to him or, or, or going from contemporary to traditional service. It, it is truly putting them out of their comfort zone. So how can we enter in conversations where they can see that by them opening up, they're opening up to a legacy to continue. And I saw a big shift in, in, in how we did things in, the, in that congregation. Worship continues to be a challenging space for a lot of people that are outside the United Methodist Church. And it can be the music, it could be just people dynamics. It could be people looking in and saying, doing a quick scan of the room and saying, not my peeps in here, you know, and, and wanting to kind of dart back out the door. And for some folks, it didn't even take looking in the room to figure that out. Worship is a challenging space for United Methodists in terms of including new people. But at the same time, I would say that churches that I see that are thriving right now, as they are including new people, and the new people are becoming a part of the DNA and the personality of the church, worship inevitably shifts, but not necessarily that we went from traditional to contemporary or that's that sort of business. But there is a shift in the in the, just the nature of the group gathered and 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 worship. It it it, it, it if if it's still going to work for a church as the, as a church changes. It has to align with the people that are gathering. It just has to be their their gathering. And and I would say I'm glad that you 
said it this way. It's a change in the nature because some churches say, oh, we want to open up to the community, so we're going to change the form. And so they go from traditional to contemporary right. or they go from hymns to praise band, but it is the same essence. And yeah. so it, it so they, they don't see a, a, I would say fruitfulness or success, and they, but, but we change everything. Did you really change the essence? But as people come in and they bring who they are, you know, the last appointment I had, it was a multicultural set and turned into a multicultural setting, one church and multiple expressions. And it was traditional. I mean, in terms of service, I mean, high church, traditional, but it was it was just beautiful how the cultures came in together, how the way even the hymns were, were sung, how they came in together. And, and it does shape the way we the way we interact, the way we fellowship, the way we use the terms and, and the conversations that come out and the celebrations and ministry moments that happen. And, and it was shaped by how groups of people came in with their with who they are and as they belong the flavor of the worship space changed i mean sometimes a pastor will have a knack for a certain population that's not currently in the church and she or he might be able to kind of take the whole worship experience in a way that is very appreciative of another group and when they do that people that have been around for a while will say on sunday did she just say that? Did she just do that? Did that just happen? Because because that shift is happening, and, and, and some pastors are good at that. But it seems, without putting all the, the responsibility on a pastor to be this cultural genius, that you got to get people around a table to do some of the planning and some of the yes. design work. And it's the people that can come around a table that are going to design what's going to work for the people around the table and all of the people that they love, you know? There, there is a word that I learned in the last couple of years, and it is cultural humility. Yeah. People need to shift from cult- cultural competence to cultural humility. Mm. And cultural competence gives you the idea of, oh, I want to reach this people group, and this people group is A, B, and C, so I am going to... You know, I want Mexican, so I'm going to feed tacos and I'm going to have a mariachi. And, and so, like, you have those stereotypes, right? And you're like, you know, that's cultural competency because you have studied the culture and you think that's what it is. Cultural humility comes from a place of listening and a place of truly trying to understand and welcome the other person. So as these teams are sitting to plan worship, they are not just assuming what that group needs they are truly listening spiritually listening and saying what can i learn and 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 having people bringing those people to that space of worship planning and say for you what are some ways that we can reach you and that makes a whole world of a difference because when people are planning worship or are planting from a place of cultural humility they don't come from a place of superhero, here I am, and I know, I have all the answers, and I come to save this people group. They're truly opening their spiritual ears and their hearts to learn from and to work with the people group they're trying to reach. I love that term, cultural humility. I wrote a book called Cultural Confidence about two years ago. I'd rename it. If, I'd, if we'd had this conversation, I'd rename my book. 
Um, no, I really love that term because I think it really does get to the point that it's more than just knowing what's going on around us. It, it's an attitude of being willing to sort of lean back in terms of our cultural assumptions and practices to make space for our sisters and our brothers and our neighbors you know, yep. and to discover new traditions beautiful traditions and by and by doing that you might be so surprised because people have so much to bring to the table and to offer and to enrich the life of the church that when you move from what can i bring to them to really listen and see how can they come into the fold and enrich who we are it it it, it changes everything it doesn't limit people's ability to be a part of and to bless a place. What has been your experience either in the with Spanish and English or other kinds of language mixes? What has been your experience in terms of observing bilingual worship where you have translation going on either through headphones or it literally, you know, almost like a cadence back and forth as things are said that there's different languages? Does that work sometimes? It does, but it varies from context to context. And, okay. and that's where it's not a one-size-fits-all. I have mm -hmm. been in services where it has been translation out of, you know, from English to Spanish automatic, where we have used headphones, and places where we have decided that we're going to go one language, but we're going to have things in our worship that sim exemplify the different cultures. Right. So there are hymns that are the same in Spanish and English. So we will sing it in English. And if you know it in Spanish, know it in Spanish and it, it, sing it in Spanish or the Lord's Prayer in English. But if you know it in Spanish, say it in Spanish. So it really varies from the context. And, and in some places I've seen, you know, churches go too fast into trying to, you know, oh, we're going to have we have two families. So we're going to have now we're going to translate the sermon. Or we're going to, you know, do bilingual service, and that does a disservice to to the church, because especially when you have a large group. Let's say if you have a large group of kids, you know, between the age of fifteen and thirty, and they are fully bilingual, it becomes tiring for them mm -hmm. to hear the mm -hmm. the first the thing in English and then hear it in Spanish and it's back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, yeah. back and forth. Or, or they are like, oh, they missed a word, and that has happened to me. I'm like, oh, that's not what it says, you know. So you you totally and then you get stuck on that, and yeah. you get stuck yeah. on that. So I, I have seen churches that have successfully done it, and 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 it happens when from the start it has been like that, and so people are used to it, and people are you know in Spanglish, what we call Spanglish congregations, and they're fine navigating back and forth. But I would be very careful to to tell a church, you know, go bilingual tomorrow. Yes. It would have to be an assessment of how many people also that is consistent. Uh, and not only Spanish and English, I've had congregations where they have ASL and they tr they, they are interpreting as, mm -hmm. as as we preach. And and it's the same thing. It's all about consistency. It's about what who is it serving? What is the best practice for your setting? And then at the end, what is the purpose? Why are we doing this? Is it just to accommodate temporarily? Or is this going to be the identity of who we are moving forward? It does make a difference. You know, as I think about the times when I've been in such spaces, I'm thinking of a couple of different churches in Texas 
they started as all Spanish and were adding English. That's a different journey than if you start as English and start adding Spanish. It was just different. I mean, I'm not, it's just a, because Spanish was kind of the base language of those places. And so they had developed a certain culture that came from the community of people that they gathered and they were trying to stretch that, you know, their, their bandwidth, but they were going English. Do do you think there's a difference? I mean, in yes. terms of where you start, yeah. Yes, yes, because it's Spanish. What I've noticed for Spanish speakers moving into English is usually a continuation of the culture, just in another language. Meaning, they see the need because their kids are growing up and their youth are now in school and they speak English and they don't want to speak Spanish. So they see that the youth group is growing. They need to go to English. They are getting married. They're having kids. They're coming back from college. And it's an extension of who they are culturally just in another language. And usually when an Anglo congregation is trying to reach out to communities and they go in Spanish, they often, not always, but often have a separate group that is forming. And that's where a lot of the challenges are happening because it's not an extension of the same DNA and culture. It's just a different language or church within a church. Now, churches that do this transition from English to Spanish or having one church of multiple expressions that have it with, you know, there's still going to be challenges, but with least amount of, of challenges is the churches that see this is still our church. We still have the same discipleship system. We still have the same connection. We are still the same church. It's just an outreach in Spanish, an extension of who we are. And they're easily transferable. And usually some of those churches, what they do is they find the meeting ground, which is usually the youth group, where from the Spanish ministry and the English ministry, they meet together somehow with the youth group because that's where they meet. That's where they meet. And they, they have activities together, VBS together, and it works perfectly. Challenges happen when... English-speaking congregations want to open any any time, not only Spanish, any other language speakers, and they don't have a clear understanding of they're still part of who we are, or is this a church within a church, or is this an ex uh, just a church plant that we're doing to reach the community? Because in some cases, those ethnic ministries end up growing more, and then, then a power struggle happens. Mm. So it is. It is. It is. It is good from the start to have those conversations of what style of ministry is this? Is this an extension of who we are? Are we going to? In what ways are we going to partner? And what is the purpose behind us reaching to this ethnic group? Okay, I've got a couple of questions for you as we before we close out here that I would love to hear your thoughts about that grew out of this conversation, but one is for the annual conference that lost almost all of its non-Anglo ethnic churches. What thoughts would you share with this conference about how they might catch their breath and start fresh in terms of the diversity journey? I would say to not rush into opening things. The first thing I would say. Second is that we have amazing partners such as Path One. I'm not the only person at Path One. Our Path One team is very diverse and can help the conferences in terms of consultation to really think through as they open these new ministries. 
A second is to step back and to really ask themselves, like I said at the beginning, questions of understanding how they got to this place and yes. taking the time to spiritually discern. Because opening ministries, just for the sake of opening ministries, have a limited time span. But if they take the time to truly say, are we going to be truly a welcoming place? Are we ready to open our spaces? How are we going to recruit and equip and empower and deploy people that are connected to us and that will, for the most part, remain United Methodist or or understand who we are as part of the connection? And then there are things like Luke Edwards' listening community, where they can, as a conference, not only take a time to listen to God, get to know how they got where they got, and then really do a spiritual assessment of where are the areas of opportunity. And it is it is better to open one or two places that would be fruitful, that then can be multiplied, than to try to solve this big issue opening a lot of places that's my thought process opening a lot of places that might not be fruitful as you were speaking there you cited luke edwards was that a resource that he created it is a resource that we that luke edwards is working on it's called listening church listening community okay. and there are some cohorts that are coming up and, and and it's not just for churches we are doing it we we just finished real texas conference and their Hispanic churches as they're revitalizing and rethinking ministry mm-hmm. as they okay. are also going through some losses. But it's, it's a basic principle of listening to God, a, a period of listening to God as God prepares our hearts, listening to self. How do we get here? What is our historical background? What have been the challenges? To so really deeply ask the questions, what do we see ourselves as and how do we see ourselves as a church or as a conference How do we view ourselves? And then take a period of time to listen demographically, interviews, prayer walks, to look at the area that you're going to be serving and not assume that you know what needs to happen, but to really listen and then bring all three things together in a consultation and say, where do we have matches? Where do we see that? what God is telling us plus who we are as identity and what the community needs, where do they meet? And then focus your energies and planning with what you found. That is one thing that they can do and, and it is available. But but I, I really I really do think that, you know, our, our bishop here at Florida Annual Conference had a gathering recently and he said something that that really resonated with me he said you know there are periods where we have an orientation there are times in our life where we feel these disoriented but those times of disorientation are an opportunity for reorientation and for churches and conferences that or conferences that have felt like we lost all of this where are we we don't know where to start i, I think it's a wonderful opportunity to create, to build, to nurture congregations that have remained also, but to really look at themselves and reorient themselves to have diversity and inclusion in their DNA, have diversity and inclusion from in church planting from its inception. Like every plant that we're going to have from now on is diversity and inclusion. Every group that we're going to fund is going to have diversity and inclusion in mind. And I think that will make a huge difference in how how the outcome of this work will be. 
There is a small town in the center of the United States where the United Methodist Church there disaffiliated, and there were two couples, people about my age, two white couples, that said, we still want to have United Methodist Church. And they, for the first time, as they looked around to see who else wants to go with us, they were able to see people that were not like the demographic of the church that had disaffiliated, which had been their church for decades. And so a new church is, is being created that is much, much more multi-ethnic simply because their eyes were open to actually just see the people because they were forced to look around. If they had stayed, if their church had not disaffiliated, if they had stayed there, they never would have even done that. It's been my observation that many of the churches in that same part of the world, which is kind of the swath that runs down the center of the United States, a lot of disaffiliations, but the, but the big issue remains that they've disaffiliated, but they're still being marginalized as older white folk in a world that's changing. What would you say to an Anglo congregation in the, in the denomination or wherever, but that wants to get out of their white ghetto? Just the fact that they are thinking that they want to get out of this is an excellent step. Yay. That they, if they are able to recognize that they need change, that means that something in, in them is moving. So we celebrate that, all right? And we say that is a huge first step. And then to, to continue with that, say, okay, God put this in us. We need to move out. So so what are the ways that we can open up our hearts and our minds to what God wants to do? Again, it's more than just a program. I think I think it, the, the changes and shifts need to happen from the heart, need to happen from, from a shift of, of mindset. And if a group is already thinking like that, that's amazing. Now, the next step would be to really ask themselves and say, in what ways can we open ourselves up and understand that the moment they walk in, they will belong? How can I open myself up to to new experiences? And I would say simple things like do a prayer walk around the community. Go and have conversations in in the coffee shop next door. Go have conversations in the school. Find a school counselor. And sit with them and say, hey, what are you seeing is the need in, for these kids? And as they have those conversations in community and, and God is and the Holy Spirit is working and their hearts are being opened, God will show them the connection between their desire and the needs of the community. Patricia, we could just go on with this. This is so much fun talking to you today. And I have a sense that you have some really good perspectives on this that some of our listeners may want to contact you. The contact information for you will be included in the notes on the on the website from which this podcast is, is engaged. So look in the notes, folks, if you want to visit with Patricia further, contact her, explore anything we've talked about today. Patricia, I thank you for your taking time to share with our Listeners on Churches Changing, any last word to us? This is a time of opportunity, and God is still at work, and the church still belongs to God. And I think that as we open up, we will be surprised with what God has in store for us. Amen. What a beautiful word. I'm Paul Nixon, here with my colleague Patricia Pena, who works on the Path One team of Discipleship Ministries. In the world of diversity and community engagement, and I thank you, Patricia, Churches Changing is a ministry of the United Methodist Church. 
Church is Changing podcast is a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Music is by Sanjay Singh. Visit all our podcasts at podcast.umcdiscipleship.org.